Spikeball is touting itself as the next great American sport. Uh, we'll leave that statement where it is. But essentially, jury, it's jury, the jury, 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 jury. <laughs> Spikeball is the next great American sport. Oh, John. Spikeball is life. Oh, Jordan. my gosh. I, Spikeball is life. I see I am in the minority in this situation. Well, hey, everyone. Oh, God. Okay. Hey, everyone, and welcome to Another Bite, where we rewatch some of the most innovative and intriguing pitches from Shark Tank. I'm Jory, and I'm joined by Ariel. Hey, friends. And John. How you doing, everybody? <laughs> oh, gosh. Jory's not feeling well, everybody, so we're all going to do our best to go raspy voice alongside Jory. We're going to power through. <laughs> So today we'll be chatting about, well, I suppose about summertime. And we can pretend that my voice is that California sunshine. And I totally don't have a cold because who catches a cold in summertime? <laughs> and along with our theme, we've got uh, products that will bring you into the sun and the surf and will help you see, steer, and I guess spike your way to success. But before we get into all that beachy goodness, we've got bills to pay. So first in the tank, we have Magic 5. And Magic 5 is brought to us by Bo and Rasmus. And our founders come to us with a product that is the world's first custom-fitted swimming goggles. So essentially, the problem they're trying to solve is that our faces are all different shapes. Magic 5 comes with an app that scans your face to get its custom measurements, and then they build these custom goggles for you that are shipped right to your door. And the secret to their success is really that they have this like custom, I guess, frame, if you think about them like glasses, that allows them to adhere to your face without like leaving any marks. It's essentially uh, custom swimming goggles, right? Before we dive into kind of the shark's responses... I had an immediate question for you, Ariel, because oh, yes. this was an instance where I just absolutely didn't get the branding, right? So this is an instance mm -hmm. where the brand was named something that I'm sure meant something to someone, but it wasn't immediately clear when you say like Magic 5, the type of product that was meant to be invoked. So I was actually curious immediately about like your take on this as like a branding, just because there seems to be like a balance you have to play when your name doesn't align with the job to be done of a product. So what was your take on this branding? Yeah, absolutely, Jory. And I feel like this is such a great segue from like our last episode when went through kind of what are some of the five principles mm -hmm. of making a good brand name. And one of those things is being able to recognize, you know, what is the relevance behind the name relative to the product. So usually when you want to have a brand name from a consumer side, you want to make sure that it's really easy. It's something tangible that people can associate with and be able to recall specifically. So for me with Magic 5, I did not like the name. Okay. Uh, at first, mm -hmm. just to be yeah. totally upfront about it. I was curious why kind of the naming, and I wish they went into this a little bit more. Is there like a five-step process to get your goggles? And that's why it's called Magic 5. But I actually think this doesn't cause as much of a detrimental effect as some of the other products that we've reviewed that have not had the most stellar brand names. Because I think what we start to uncover here is it's not necessarily about the goggles and there's more to be seen behind like what the actual value is at this company. And I think that's something that like Kevin and Narav 
caught on pretty quickly. And that's like the data and being able to capture someone's face through the technology and the robotics that are available. And that's where it's more of a business and less of the goggles are more just like an output of what they can do. But this could potentially extend to something much wider. Yeah, I like that you're so clear-eyed about the brand name, Ariel. (laughs) I was goggling Uh, my brain about it, you know? I I feel like this is actually a case where, like, they tried to name it something else, but, like, the business cards came back, and, like, the person who made the business (laughs) cards got confused about the name. Like, maybe if it was named Magic Dive, that would have made sense. You know, like, oh, you can have, like, a Magic Dive, but, like, maybe there was a misprint, so it became Magic Five, and then they're like, well, Mm. I don't know, we already bought these business cards. We might as well (laughs) just call it Magic Five. (laughs) But to your point, Ariel, it's not detrimental to me at all. And in fact, Mm -hmm. I like the idea that they're not trying to pigeonhole themselves in a particular market because you can imagine this technology could actually be huge for a whole range of products over time. And I like that they're not, you know, choosing a brand name that's going to narrow them in too much. So I swam growing up. I used to swim and I had Mm -hmm. a really hard time finding goggles that fit me. There was only one type of goggle that fit me. It was this hard nose Speedo goggle with like an exceptional amount of foam, like an extraordinary <laughs> amount of foam. I swear to God, I've never seen so much foam in a pair. Of, and like every year I'd buy like three pairs of them and like, you know, wear them out. And the idea that I could mm-hmm. get custom goggles made for my face, like blew my mind when I watched this pitch. I am an immediate customer and I got really excited about it right out the gate. Because I do think for anyone who does want to swim, like it's actually a bit of a problem. And like, do you know what the solution is when you don't have goggles that fit? You like smush the goggle into your eyeball as tight as you can before you go underwater. It's a horrible thing. You know, I spend my whole life on Zoom calls now, and it's like nothing worse than having like huge red lines around your eyes the entire day because you've had (laughs) goggles on. So this solves so many, so many problems for me. And it's really intuitive too when you think about it, right? Like if you order glasses online, you have to like get the right measurements. We get our glasses customized to the sizes of our face. Why not get our goggles the same way? I'm surprised that this has not existed before on the market. Well, I don't know what it was, but it kind of just reminded me of Warby Parker. And I wasn't quite sure exactly Mm -hmm. why. I guess it was like the custom nature of the product going on your eyes. But I almost wondered if this was like something that a company that could look to Warby Parker in terms of like generating brand awareness as like a case study. I thought about that too, or even just to sell to other companies for like clothing or e-commerce. Like I think especially with 2020 and more folks buying things online and like actually taking their measurements for the first time. Like I've never taken my measurements until the COVID happened. I think, you know, there's a lot of opportunity to kind of sell that like scan and go technology for a number of different like apparel outside of just sporting. Technology opens up a doorway to like very low cost, very high accessibility, bespoke everything. And the question is just like, which of the markets is the cost of doing it bespoke, you know, versus how much the willingness to pay is Mm -hmm. like, is there enough of a gap there to justify wanting to do it? And I think goggles market's a great example of that, where like people who are swimmers are willing to pay, they'll pay 50 to 100 bucks for a pair of really good fitting goggles because Mm -hmm. they swim all the time. And it's something they use all the time. And if you have the ability to create a production process and a production facility where your cost can be $10 to $15 to make 
those custom goggles. And in theory, as you get to scale, you can bring that down even more. Like there's just a huge arbitrage opportunity. Yeah. So there's a win, win, win. There's a need in the market. There's an affordable price point and there's the capability to expand and make sales beyond just the end product that they're producing now. The goggle marketing business is like 2.2 billion in the US and Europe. And that was mm-hmm. surprising to me. Well, swimming is an exercise that is one of the least harsh exercises on your body, but has the most benefit. You can swim late into your old age. There's a lot of activities like running where way more people do it, but you know, kind of like your knees give out at some point and it becomes too hard to run at some point. And so I do think that the thing that people probably underestimate about swimming is the lifetime value of a customer when they do get into swimming. They will do it for their whole life. And so yeah. um, you know that definitely increases the market size. But digging into the business a little bit, we see that these are sort of like a mid-price point set of goggles. They come in at $55 and they're they're costing about $14 to make. I was curious about something that the Sharks said. I guess it was Mark at first that was like, look, you can choose your shark based on a couple different factors. Like, are you coming to the tank to boost sales to get help with your strategy or to get help with this tech, right? Because they mentioned that part of their business is that they're in the business of robotics that happen to be making goggles. Mm -hmm. So I was curious about that kind of comment because Narav seems to think that you should always be focusing on all of these factors. But is there ever a case where you should be focusing on one of these things rather than all of them at once? Oh, definitely. I think every entrepreneur or business builder has got to know exactly what the priority order of things to fix in their business are. You've got to keep an eye on all of them, but giving singular focus towards solving problems tends to work better than spreading your effort across lots and lots of problems. I actually think the first problem for them is sales and getting a lot more scale. And then I think the second problem is actually manufacturing to bring the cost down and ensure that they have a scalable process. They have no idea what their manufacturing process is like, but I have to imagine that it is a somewhat complex manufacturing process. And I would just imagine that whatever process they've built to get them to this point is not gonna get them to the next point. And so my guess is those are their two biggest problems and they should just be a little bit thoughtful about which they need to solve. I would always err on the side of solving the get more sales problem first, Mm -hmm. given that they have a manufacturing process that is working currently and then solve the manufacturing process as they need to. So how would you solve a problem like that? Like generating mass brand awareness to a business like this? Well, it's a really good question. The interesting thing about swimming is that I would imagine there is a lot of very active community presence around this sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. And so like, I think one of the very first things that you want to do is you want to be sure that like the most active people in those communities try a pair of these, right? Like get them to try the app. Mm -hmm. And if it works incredibly well, they're going to tell everybody about it. And I think that alone is going to get them a bunch of traction. And then, I mean, there's just straight up digital marketing. Like, I don't think they actually need to make a big brand push. I think that like, consumers are used to the idea that they now can start to get custom things. Like they don't have to get over Mm -hmm. that barrier. They just didn't know it was available for goggles and they maybe never thought that they could do it for goggles. And so I think if they just have really good inbound marketing so that they are ranking incredibly well when people search for them, I would imagine Instagram would be a great channel for them. So that's what I would do. I also think there's an interesting component around partnerships here, particularly with sports. I think it would be really interesting if they went in down the lens of 
can they be an official like partner for like a team or like a sponsorship? So that way, if, you know, all these other swimmers in the communities are watching these meets and there's, oh, a custom like team logo or really cool goggles that are, oh, not only affordable, but they keep the water out and they like are custom fit to my face. I would actually prefer them to go down that route before the digital route, actually, because I think they could see a lot of success there. And John, to your point of like getting a lot of advocacy and the community going, like I think that could be a really great way. Yeah. I think that in the feeding frenzy that kind of unlocked when uh, our sharks started to to take bids on this company, it was actually that social piece that drove Robert to ultimately kind of seal the deal with the founders, right? Yeah. Robert mentioned that his daughter like is a world-ranked swimmer. He's part of the community. And I think it was that aspect of being around products like these that made it so he was not going to lose. Uh, he was not going to lose this deal. And actually ended up offering a whopping $1 million for 6.5% mm-hmm. equity, which was a massive deal. Yeah. I feel like Rob usually isn't that aggressive when he like really wants something. So you could tell just how much he wanted it. <laughs> which I think just speaks to like what you were saying with the social aspect, John, right? Like he went after this like aggressively. He's been a part of that community for 20 years. Yeah. Like he knows that this is a product that's going to slay in that community. And he just wants to be a part of it, even if it's not like the absolute best financial decision decision for him because he definitely, you know, the valuation that he gave them was definitely too high for the business. <laughs> but <laughs> it was amazing though, the negotiation here, right? Mm-hmm. You know, when there's blood in the water, you better hope you're wearing good fitting goggles. Nice. <laughs> and, <laughs> and sharks, that was the one thing that I will say like about their pitch that didn't make sense because they were like, you want to see as well as sharks and sharks notoriously have like really bad eyesight. So like that <laughs> Very was bad not, eyesight. Yeah, like, it that was, was a stretch. Yeah, it was a stretch. They just needed a copywriter to approve that line before yeah. they went in. That's all. They would have nixed that line. <laughs> the actual negotiation was super interesting though because everybody wanted in mm-hmm. on this actually because everybody saw it. There was like a market for this and they had this tech and they had a patent and they had like, they're going to sell a lot of goggles. The question is just like, what's a fair valuation? Mm-hmm. And what's interesting about this business, and we don't see this very often, you know, but they came in already having raised money. Mm-hmm. Um, and it happens sometimes on Shark Tank, but not that often. And the challenge when somebody comes in having already raised money is that they've already got an existing valuation for their business, right? And so every offer that a shark gives gets evaluated against that prior valuation. And if it's mm-hmm. lower than that prior valuation, that's really bad for their existing shareholders because their existing shareholders, every share that they bought in that company previously becomes worth less money on the spot that that deal happens. Mm-hmm. So there's already been a market like price set for this company. And that becomes a bit of a challenge. And one of the reasons that Robert absolutely won was because he was the only shark who was willing to surpass that $9 million pre-existing valuation. Mm-hmm. So before we get into like a company update, I have to ask, like as a swimmer, would you buy a pair of these Magic 5 goggles? Yes. (laughs) I've been to the website. Love the company. I'm buying goggles right now. (laughs) Awesome. Well, okay. So company update, we get a little spicy here actually, because Mm -hmm. one of the initial offers had come in from Mark from this company. It was just kind of very quickly overshadowed by Robert's offer, which is like no Mm -hmm. big deal. But Mark couldn't resist a deal with Magic 5 and actually went in with Robert for a million dollars for that 6.5%. And they ended up splitting it equally. So I think this was a case where the things that we see aired are very much like handshake deals and they can change afterwards. But it sounds like it kind of changed for the better because they ended up walking away with two sharks 
heavily invested in their company. In 2021, Magic 5 landed at uh, $2.6 million in sales, and the web traffic has increased by a thousand percent. So definitely are engaging their swimming community. Mm-hmm. They actually made $45,000 in revenue in the first 24 hours after the episode airing. So it seems like this was like a strategy play to get on Shark Tank, but it also gave them the clout to land some more bills. I mean, it worked for John. He saw the segment and instantly went for it. So <laughs> it's quite a definitely I'm works. so excited. Yeah. I, know. <laughs> I can't wait. I've got a neighbor who does these triathlons. I'm going to tell her. I'm going to tell everybody. I can't believe I can get custom goggles now. This is incredible. Look at that word of mouth marketing. <laughs> John's going to be an ambassador. <laughs> yeah, you need an affiliate code after this episode, John. <laughs> All right, so we're taking it from the surf to the sand. Next in the tank, we have Spikeball. And Spikeball is touting itself as the next great American sport. Uh, we'll leave that statement where it is. But essentially, jury, it's jury, the jury, 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 jury. <laughs> Spikeball is the next great American sport. Oh, John. Spikeball is life. Oh, my gosh. Spikeball is life. I see I am in the minority in this situation. Well, if you don't know what Spikeball is, lucky you. So Spikeball is this interesting mix between volleyball and uh, Foursquare. So if you haven't seen it, you might have. It sort of looks like a trampoline. You know, like one of those like little aerobic ones. I guess mm-hmm. it's more of a net that you bounce on. And you essentially like spike a ball at your opponent and they need to like hit that ricochet that comes off the net and there's no sides. So you're running around this like little small trampoline. And you know that balloon game you used to play as a kid where you keep the balloon up in the air and you like oh, push it around to like your friends analogy. and stuff. It's essentially that, but with a trampoline and a semi, I assume it's a semi harder ball. I've never actually held one of the balls. Ball. Maybe it's made out of foam. Who knows? So it puts a little more oomph than a balloon does, but that's how I describe it. I couldn't describe it any better than that. You've probably seen it on the beach or a college campus if you've been around one of those lately. I was actually really excited for this segment because I saw it in a park when I was living in SF in Dolores Park every Sunday. Like people will go out and like have drinks or like hang out with friends or play with their dogs. And every single time without fail, there was always a group that was doing spike ball, like slightly overly aggressive, just like a group of guys just getting really into it. So I was excited to see, oh, this started off in Shark Tank and just kind of see the whole journey to where it got to now. So I think I've gotten a little sense of the answer to this question, but uh, thinking about our pitch, what do you two think about the product? Spikeball is so fun. It is such <laughs> a fun game. And I'm a little biased. I'll just be honest. I'm a little biased. A little? Uh, I was living in Chicago when Spikeball came back onto the market. Mm-hmm. I worked with Chris Reuter's sister-in-law, Anne. What? I know Anne very well. And I actually met Chris and talked to him about marketing for Spikeball back in like 2014, 2015, something like that. What? And it's so fun. It is such a fun game. Mm-hmm. There's like a lot of fun games you can play outdoors, but Spikeball has one of the characteristics that sets outdoor games and particular beach games apart from every other type of game, which is that it causes you to have to dive into the sand a lot. And like any game you can play that involves you as a, you know, only quasi-athletic human, like performing (laughs) incredible feats of mastery by like diving for a ball and like in the sand is going to be a winner in my book. But what also sets it apart is the founder, Chris, is asking for $500,000 for 10% stake, right? Like he is valuing Spikeball at $5 million for a trampoline game. 
But Jory, this year in sales, they were projected to make 3.2 to 3.5 million. So I don't think it's an entirely off base because uh, I had the same gut reaction too until they got to the sales partner. I was like, oh, oh, there's actually a market for this. Yeah, let's get into the financials a little bit. You're right, Ariel, that they are in theory trending towards somewhere between three and four million in sales, something like mm-hmm. that. It's early in the year, though. Who knows which way it's going to go? Let's just say that their run rate of revenue right now is like $2 million. Let's say they made $2 million this year. That's the run rate that they're on. The problem is he's selling most of these through retail. And I did some math on the margin that he said. It's like an 11% net margin. It's a very low net margin after all of his costs. And so he's probably actually worth somewhere between one and a half to two million as a company Hmm. because of that margin. That's kind of my, my gut. And so I think if you approach an investor from that perspective, it's going to be very hard to get the valuation that Chris tried to go for. And this is actually, if I could go back in time and offer Chris one piece of advice as he made this pitch, I would have focused entirely on the community. I would have talked about how many people are playing spike ball. I don't know what the numbers were back then, actually, but I was just doing some research. Like in 2021, there's 4 million people who play spike ball. And so like you actually could do this whole pitch not based on the unit economics of the business. You could base it Mm -hmm. totally on the idea that you are building a community and that community is growing really fast. And like being a part of that is one of the things that can be so defensible about your business. And I think if he'd approached the pitch that way, I bet the Sharks would have had a lot less trouble with justifying his valuation. And it didn't seem like he got to that with them on the show. Or if he did, they cut it out. Yeah. And that's a good point because in the beginning too, he was talking about how, you know, hey, here's two teams for like the demonstration that are big fans already. We have tournaments every year. And the fact that this product, he's not inventing something new. It was a very popular kind of sport back in the 80s. He's essentially not having to build that narrative from scratch, but he's revitalizing it and like pushing that like kind of movement around. So if he would have taken more of like a movement-based approach Do you think that would have kind of solved for that, John, if he would have positioned it as like, we're bringing this back, we're getting more people into spike ball, like, as opposed to, here's my sales. I think that's the angle I would have taken. I think what I would have Mm -hmm. said is I would have said, this is a game with a network effect. And how often do you get to see physical Mm -hmm. products on this show that have network effects associated with them? And so therefore, you shouldn't value this just like a normal like physical product, you should value the network. And that's the thing, because we are going to use that network to continue to expand into other types of products, into other types of events. These tournaments are going to mm-hmm. turn all this money. Like, don't you remember when like Tough Mudder or, you know, Rugged Maniac came on the show? Like you guys were all about that. And this is like mm-hmm. so much bigger than that because that's like a one-off thing. And this is an always on thing. I would have painted this picture of how this ecosystem would be a huge economic engine for the people who were involved in it. To me, it was that exact network effect that made the pitch so confusing, right? Because it was kind of unclear if they were trying to make this like a serious competitive sport, which their investment in tournaments might suggest, versus just like that fun lawn game that you like play Mm -hmm. with your friends, right? It seemed like they were trying to do both. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, but it made the narrative a little confusing of like, who is this spike ball for? Because the two teams that they brought in for their demonstration were like the top ranked teams in the nation, right? And that's a different value add than, hey, you can buy this thing and like have a lot of fun in your backyard. Mm-hmm. I don't know. My take on that, Jory, is you want both mm-hmm. because you want to have a game that is accessible to everybody but that for those who become absolutely obsessed with it could see a path to being the best in the world at it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's like a pretty magical situation to create. I don't know a ton of games that don't have quasi-legitimate 
competition leagues associated with them. That's fair. You know, like people love to play beach volleyball. Just like beach volleyball in the Olympics, you know, like all these games, they've got yeah. multiple tiers, and I think that's even like Quidditch. Quidditch, they're playing Quidditch at college campuses. That's a great quasi activity that has a good cult following. <laughs> oh gosh, Quidditch! <laughs> and by the way, I think it was so cool that he brought like the best teams in the world onto Shark Tank because what a cool benefit for their community. Mm-hmm. They like earn their way onto that through commitment to the sport and by winning, and like I, I thought that was so cool. Yeah, and I think that like it does go to show like it it's it could be a product for someone who is more leisurely, but it also has the opportunity to for this to be your new obsession or your next mm-hmm. thing that you do with your friends. And like I think he even mentioned to something about selling memberships yeah. as well, which I thought was a really interesting kind of like component. So it sounds like he was trying to build up like that community angle, but if his messaging and his like actual narrative was a little more fine-tuned would have gotten there definitely like so i looked it up the memberships are to compete in like the sanctioned tournaments oh Mm -hmm. but there's all sorts of unsanctioned tournaments like at least back when i first saw spike ball in chicago like people were just organizing on the beach they would just put like facebook posts up and all sorts of people would roll in it was so fun it was so fun But ultimately, we do see that there's like an issue with margin. There's an issue with valuation. And I think that's what the Sharks started to, for all it's an exciting sport, have less than exciting reactions about. I was curious what you thought, though, about those margins, them being so low. He's got to get out of wholesale or raise the price, one of the two, (laughs) you know. (laughs) Fair enough. I was going to ask too, John, because you mentioned we were talking about the valuation, the margins loosely related. Do you feel like his valuation for $5 million was fair given his margin? Because I feel like we've seen companies come up with valuations that sometimes aren't really rooted much in the business and what they're making. Then there's some that are like really like down to a finer point looking at it from like tooth and nail. So curious to know, do you think because the margins are so low, he shouldn't have asked for $5 million valuation? I think that he clearly did some math on how he thought the company was valued, but that is not the way that he approached the pitch. He decided that despite his margins, the company was actually worth way more than the margins would indicate, but he never explained why that was. And I think that was actually the challenge. Like he could have Mm -hmm. said, I think about valuating this company entirely differently. And the reason I think it's worth $5 million is because membership growth has grown X percent Mm -hmm. and these people have really high renewal rates. And it's not just about them buying the set once. It's actually about them becoming members and paying membership into this league and doing all this stuff. And that's a recurring revenue. Like there's some other way that he probably got to that $5 million valuation. It's a lifestyle. But he didn't explain that. And so there's all sorts of ways to value a business. And ultimately valuations are just made up anyway. So, you know, they're all theoretical. Why not have a high? Is it worth 4X or 5X? I don't know. (laughs) What's your mood? Depends on how much you want to scale it. (laughs) Yeah. So ultimately, though, despite the valuation problem, it seemed that he came into the Shark Tank really gunning for Damon. Mm -hmm. Um, So we saw like Kevin and Mark go out pretty early just because of that valuation. But he ultimately went after Damon because as we know, Damon's really good with the licensing and like lowering manufacturing costs, which I thought was like a fantastic sharp partnership. But ultimately, Damon did offer this founder a deal for 500000 for 20% stake in equity. There's a little back and forth in that like Damon was like, don't get too greedy. And it kind of seemed like for a minute, this founder was going to lose a deal. Yeah. But ultimately, the deal was made with Damon. I thought the 25 down to 20% was too much. I would have not given up that much equity. Yeah. Well, don't you fear, Ariel, because (laughs) 
I'll tell you a little bit about that deal with Damon because we talked about handshake deals and this is actually one that <gasps> never closed, never went through. <gasps> so despite Wait. Spike Ball, I know, having this kind of back and forth and this deal with Damon, the deal got it spiked. never went through. It got spiked. So what was the impact after the show then? Was it to garner more of the community then? I'm just curious what how they ended up. Good question. So in 2021, the National Spikeball Tournament was actually showcased on ESPN2. Um, the first oh. round net, that's actually outside of the U.S. Usually what this sport is called is round net. Mm. But the first world championships took place in Belgium in September 2022. So very much still around. And the International Round Net Federation is lobbying to make it an Olympic sport. As of January 2023, oh. the annual revenue of Spikeball as a company, though, is $19 million. So despite the deal with Damon not going through, and sometimes that can crush a company, mm-hmm. Spikeball is definitely here to stay, and it's definitely gaining momentum as a sport. Spikeball is life. John, you can have a new aspiration. <laughs> From the backyard to the Olympic Spikeball ring. Oh when I w- was into the idea of Spikeball, I was a little more nimble than I am now. I'm a little... Maybe a little more concerned about diving onto the ground. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) Create Like the Greats, hosted by Ross Simmons, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. Each episode hosts an in-depth analysis of some of the greatest creations and creators of all time, along with deep dive conversations on the creative process that went into building companies and brands. If you like learning about history or learning about the creative process, you'll like this podcast. Listen to Create Like the Greats wherever you get your podcasts. All right. Well, last in the tank, we have Uru Kayak. And this comes to us from founders Anton, Roberto, and Andy. And they are asking for $500,000 for a 12% stake in their company, which is a $4,166,667 valuation. And their product is Uru Kayak, which is this really interesting collapsible kayak that's inspired by origami. Mm -hmm. So essentially, you have like a standard size kayak that folds into basically what amounts to like a large duffel bag or a really big like beach tote bag. And the kayak is like this very flexible, collapsible plastic that when folded up is actually only about 26 pounds, which is pretty light for a kayak. According to our founders, it's tested in all conditions. So white water rafting, ocean, lake, you know, any kind of water it can handle. And the founders are looking for a partner to help scale up manufacturing. So thinking about our interesting foldable kayak, what are our initial takes on Uru Kayak? I think this is a great example of, they had a good concept, right? Mm. Of providing kayaking that's a little bit easier to travel with. For myself, like that's perfect because I don't have a big car or like an SUV to like strap something on on top. So I see kind of where they were going with this. I mean, it comes down to the price. It comes down to the brand and like what, how can this be more scalable? Because it's just a very basic branding. I feel like they could have done so much more like fun colors or customizations even. Like if you're going to place an order for like a kayak, may as well go all out and make more of like a premium tier product as opposed to like more of an entry level mass market offering. So does that mean you're out? For those reasons, I am out. Wow, then I'm in, Ariel. You got this all wrong, you fool. 
Oh, yeah. Classic Ariel. The name calling. Oh, you fool. Uh, Okay. So why are you in John then? This product's incredible. It's like a kayak you could take on whitewater rapids that folds up into a suitcase. I can't believe it. I have a canoe, okay? Big canoe This canoe weighs like 85 freaking pounds. I keep being like, oh, yeah, I can get it on the car alone. No, it's heavy. It's a big ass canoe. And I can't believe I could have been having a suitcase-sized kayak that I could have been walking around with, taking it on the bus, going to the river. Do you truly think, though, that it would be durable in whitewater rafting? Because some of these claims were, like, way out of line. And since you're someone who does Listen, I'm taking their word on that. I am taking their word Mm. on that, that it is solid. And, you know, Robert got into the kayak and he said, I expected this to feel like a love pop card, but it doesn't. (laughs) It feels much more solid than that. Yeah, he said it felt really sturdy. Maybe I'm afraid of drowning. I have like an intense fear of swimming, clearly. So maybe that's why I'm not sold. (laughs) For this reason, you are not the demographic. (laughs) Yes. All kidding aside, I think this is a remarkably cool product. I could not believe as I watched them actually assemble it. And I am going to trust that their claims are true, that it is actually watertight and it is actually solid and not going to fall apart. I think it's awesome. I think they can raise the price. They're currently selling it for like 1100 bucks. Other collapsible kayaks are like four to $5,000. They definitely hmm. can raise the price. It's cost them 500 bucks to make. I think they could definitely bring that down a bunch as they start to scale up. I think that's probably the thing they're going to need the most help with. And I just think lots of people actually want personal watercraft. A lot of people do not have storage for it. Mm-hmm. Like you could mail this thing. You could ship this mm-hmm. to someone's house. Imagine getting a kayak arriving at your house in the mail. My God. I do see what you're saying though, Ariel. So the inspiration's origami, right? Mm -hmm. And origami is so colorful, right? Mm -hmm. And if you want to really make that your narrative, like your product's got to kind of reflect that. Yeah. The model came out and it was just like a plain white plastic. And I think that also made me think it would be flimsy because it looked like paper. It looks like plastic. So I do see what you mean in terms of like, in order to really get that buy-in, because also kayaks are really colorful. Like you can get all these Mm -hmm. different colors. I needed something more in the product. Yes. to get really excited about it, especially if their whole brand narrative is like based on an art that is inherently colorful. You know, look, good marketing and good like product packaging can always come in later on down the line. I think it's interesting just given how early on they are in there as we start to uncover as the sharks are asking questions, like the fact that it wasn't really standing out apart from any other kayaks. If I was the basic consumer trying to get into kayaks, I'd be like, why would I want to get this one? design-wise. It was impressive, though, that they were selling direct to consumer and had made $1.1 million in sales, though. So, like, for all we are saying that it's kind of boring, like, plenty of people are not agreeing. (laughs) I just think when you actually break it down, I think there are lots of people who do not have a lot of storage space, but who love the idea of going out into nature and going out on a kayak trip. People love kayaking. One thing they didn't get into that I would have loved to find out about was their customer acquisition cost. I would imagine Mm. the customer acquisition cost is pretty high. Yeah, (laughs) It's one of those things where it's like, yeah, you would need a lot of social proof to feel confident buying one of these online Mm -hmm. because you're like, I'm going to drop like 1100 bucks. Who knows if the thing's high quality? Like you're probably going to want to feel it, touch it, like see it. Mm -hmm. And so that's a little bit tricky. I would imagine they're going to have to get some sort of retail partnership or run an amazing social proof campaign so everybody feels really confident buying it. 
Something else I wish they included was any additional information around how is this a defensible company too? Mm. I would have loved to hear, we own the patent for like foldable kayaks so no one else can replicate this. Like I really wish that they could have dived a little bit more deeper into there. The fact that one of the founders was like a competitive kayaker. But it it was interesting because I feel like that was just something they really breezed over. And it's like if the issue is social proof and you have like Mm. someone that's in the scene... Leverage that community. Such a good point. Some of these sharks, you know, wasn't great fit for some, wasn't developed enough or it was too early for others. But ultimately, Robert jumped in the ring and offered our founders $500,000 for 25%. And they sealed the deal with Robert. So despite some of these kind of initial issues, they were able to walk away with the deal. After the deal with Robert closed, Uru Kayak partnered with Get Outfitted. Hmm. So it was a partnership that was meant to like rent the kayaks and the rental fee would be credited towards the purchase of a new kayak. So I think they started to like really lean into that social proof aspect to get people like in the kayaks so they felt confident in the kayaks. Their revenue was $8 million a year after the show. Oh, wow. But actually, recently, the company was acquired by Solo Stove for an undisclosed amount. Hmm. So this actually turned into a bit of like a acquisitions and mergers play kind of out of left field. Yeah. <laughs> um, and ultimately, the founders did sell their company later on. I mean, good for them. That's like the end goal, right? Is to, well, yeah. I mean, for some folks is to, you know, I just have an idea, a vision, a product. Let's make it happen and be done. So who do you think wins the golden bite of today's episode? Oh, got to give it to Spikeball. Definitely. Spikeball is life. I want to see a video of you playing Spikeball to prove that you love it this much. (laughs) (laughs) I will accept no less. I'll get my Spikeball out. Okay. Hands down, Magic 5, because... I think there's just so much opportunity and value in this pitch beyond just what they were presenting. So magic five any day. All right. Today's episode was written and produced by the incomparable Matthew Brown. Additional support comes from Melanie Romero. If you like the show, tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell everybody. Because, I mean, I like hanging out with you. Do you like hanging out with me? What do you say, Barb? I'm out. Okay, rude. (laughs) You can follow and subscribe to the show wherever fine podcasts are found. That's everywhere, in case you're wondering. Every podcast player, we're there. That's it from me, for real this time. We'll see you next week in the tank for another bite.